Marshall here. Welcome back to Counterbalance. This is an episode I've been incredibly excited about ever since I got an early publication copy. I spoke with Eric Swartzel of the Wall Street Journal about his new book, Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. This book is so interesting because it lets us get at a topic that we've covered a lot on the show. The CCP, U.S. interest, great power competition, soft power, hard power, but through a more approachable and frankly, deeply interesting and engaged in your life perspective. During this episode, we discuss the state of the U.S. movie industry state of the Chinese movie industry, how the censorship debate is one that's a little more nuanced than you would think, aka it's not quite clear how one polices censorship when oftentimes it's actually done by people who are writing scripts without any direct supervision trying to play into the structure there. So lots of really interesting takeaways. I think this is definitely an episode that folks in the foreign policy community should take note of because it's an example of how so many of the themes that we discuss in lots of these contexts, especially at Hudson, are going to play out in our everyday lives. So we'd just love once again to shout out Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. Of course, a huge thank you to Hudson for supporting our work. Hope you all enjoy the episode. Eric Swartzel, welcome to Counterbalance. Hey, I'm happy to be here. I'm really excited to chat with you. We did a great episode on your book, Red Carpet, on the realignment a few weeks ago. But given the Hudson context, I thought we could do a, a different but related episode that really zooms in on the foreign policy implications in that broader conversation. But let's just set the set the table. I'm sure this is what everyone's wondering about. Starting with China and then going to the US, could you just say what the status quo in both movie industries would be? So if, we're, if you're China, theaters are open, receipts are up, explain that and then give the American side in 2022. Yeah, it's definitely, it's a tale of two cities when it comes to the post-COVID landscape right now. So Chinese movie theaters reopened very quickly after COVID was brought under control in the country. And movies are not back to pre-pandemic levels just yet, but they're doing well. And one of the trends that was pre-COVID, but is still is happening post-COVID as well, is that the moviegoer in China tends to be younger than in the U.S. So younger people in China are going back to the theaters more and more. And the movies they're seeing tend to be Chinese movies rather than more of a mix uh, between Chinese and American movies that you might have seen before COVID. And then in the U.S., there is just this looming existential crisis over movie theaters, because while we have had some hits drive audiences back to theaters, primarily things like Spider-Man um, and other movies geared toward younger crowds, no one is going back to the movies as frequently as they did before COVID. And the studios are in a position where it's making less and less sense to release as many movies in theaters as they once did. So the theatrical business, which already kind of operated on the margins and you know made all of its money on popcorn, like seeing even 10% or 15% of its product cut from the market could mean thousands of theaters have to close. And so we're in this moment right now where the theatrical market in, in China, as I said, is not yet pre, not back to pre-pandemic levels, but it's robust. 
and healthier than in the US where it seems like no one knows what's going to happen. Something interesting here, even casual observers of Hollywood and the film industry will know that there's this fear in the United States around Hollywood studios, actors, etc., are going to kowtow on various levels to get access to the Chinese market. Given that theaters have reopened there, but they largely haven't here to the same degree, and given that you now have diverging audience tastes and behaviors, is that dynamic only going to be amplified more? So if you want to get beyond just releasing on a streaming service and maybe having it not go well, is the Chinese market with actual open theaters going to be attractive moving forward? I think so. I mean, I think this happened a this happened quite a bit during COVID when there were a couple quarters there where almost every major business with business in China would say essentially thank God for China. You know, like if you whether you were Nike or Daimler Chrysler, a lot of these companies were reporting these earnings that were healthier than expected in part because of China's faster recovery out of COVID. And so I think that dynamic could apply to Hollywood. But there's there's another issue here, which is that if Hollywood studios start releasing fewer films in theaters, that's going to mean that the films they do release in theaters have to be as big as possible and as appealing as possible. And that's going to mean bigger, expensive films that are going to require bigger global releases. And so in that dynamic, you need to get into China and to get into China, you need to play by the rules. So I think that is going to boost China's leverage um, over Hollywood and any really any executive who needs to maintain that access. We could have a conversation around the free market, but what becomes clear here is that this is a very government-driven dynamic here. So we could talk all we want about Hollywood wanting to get into that market, but at this point, how are um, what's just, I don't, I don't even know what the proper government ministry of this would be referring to, but how, how are the figures in the CCP who determine what comes in, what is shut down, what releases, but isn't allowed to have a successful release? What is their opinion on the topic so far as we know? Well, we, we know, you know, it's very hard. We don't get memos out of, out of Beijing that explain their, their rationale, but there have been some decisions that have been made recently that, have caused quite a bit of alarm. And and I'm referring primarily to several decisions over 2021 to not release major Hollywood movies into China. So there were a string of films that typically flow into China unimpeded, like A Black Widow or A Shang-Chi or A Spider-Man. These are not movies that have any censorship issues. There, there's a ton of fans you know, whether it's for Marvel or other superheroes in China that show up and buy the tickets. Um, and yet one movie after another was rejected by the Chinese censors who are who operate under the Ministry of Propaganda in Beijing. And the theory in Hollywood, there are a number of theories in Hollywood. There's no real explanation, but one is that it appears as though China is really tightening the spigot of Western influence and not letting as much Western influence into the country. And this has happened in the past, you know, whenever, whether for whatever reason, the CCP decides they want to bolster domestic nationalism, they will often put up walls to keep any kind of Western influence out of the country. You saw this, um, I guess it was maybe two years ago now, whenever there was the big, I think it was the big party anniversary 
Um, and, and there were these giant parades through the streets of Beijing. In the weeks leading up to those parades, state broadcasters were told to dust off all their nationalist movies and put them on TV. I mean, there's this, there's this sort of sense, like if you, if you're going to have a, a, a parade, you should sort of seed patriotism among the populace in the weeks before so that the event is as patriotic as possible. And, and it feels like whether it's because of the Olympics or Xi Jinping's broader consolidation of power, that there is an effort across many sectors to have China turn more inward. I'm interested in the use of the term Western influence when it came to Hollywood movies, because if you look at that through the perspective of, let's say, critics of Hollywood, they've said the problem is the exact opposite happens. So you have American movies come into China, and then you have script writers. Like you said, there's no actual memo. Script writers say, well, you know, do we need to have that thing happen in the movie that could be perceived as bad. There's lots of talk of the infamous incident with Top Tom Cruise's um, patches on his um, leather flight jacket in Top Gun 2. There's no indication that there was a CCP official who said, get that off there. That was, that was how self-censorship works. So why would China... I guess why would China? I guess when I put it this way, it seems to me from a very not even cynical perspective, China probably gets a lot out of shaping U.S. popular culture in that sense, and especially just global culture. So how does that? I, I'm just, I'm just a little, I just came in from your book kind of confused on this point. Mm, yeah, it's a gr- it's a great point, and, and you're you're absolutely right. I know for a fact that there was no memo from Beijing about Tom Cruise's jacket. You're right. I mean every every studio executive in town who can can read a script and identify what will be the issues um for the authorities in Beijing and and take them out um it's it's not, it's not hard sometimes they even print the rules and say these are the these are the things you need to avoid um you're right i don't i don't think that this past year when when china put these walls up i don't see it as necessarily a permanent change but i think for that reason because i don't I don't think the Chinese authorities want a world where Hollywood says, all right, we're going to take our ball and go home because you're right. That market access has given them incredible political leverage to change, not just the movies that are coming into China, but any movie being shown around the world. That's the key distinction here is that countries around the world censor their films before they're shown on screen, you know? And and, I mean, you should see some of the things that have to be taken out of films before they go to Saudi Arabia. The difference is Saudi Arabia isn't then forcing those cuts to be made to movies shown regardless of where they are. And that is what China does by, by coercing Hollywood studios to avoid certain topics or make these preemptive changes. Something I'd like to do then is just get into the history here, because that's actually my favorite part of the book. Let's talk about the film industry under Nazi Germany, because especially and obviously in the lead up to World War II, because one would not think that Germany would have such a large role in censorship, just given the the nature of the 1930s. So can you you just give us a bit of a history lesson here? Um, What are the takeaways and what what basically happened during that time period um, and whether or not that rhymes with today? Yeah, I think that it's a parallel that I just was routinely struck by um, when I got to learn more and more about Hollywood's relationship with the Nazi party, primarily, as you said, in the 1930s. So this is this is 
all before the U.S. enters the war. And there's a lot of obviously domestic debate about how involved America should be in the conflict in general. And in Hollywood, there are initial efforts made to make movies about Hitler's rise and what they knew at the time of the plight of the Jews. And Germany was a significant international market back then. And through a number of high-profile examples, much like China does, they made it clear that making any film that was critical of Hitler or shined a light on what the Nazis were doing in Europe would shut off access to the German market. And not only that, potentially shut off mar- shut off the markets of all German allies and, ma- and ensure that any studio with a company or an affiliated parent company doing business in Germany would also be shut off from the market if such a movie were made. It's, it's, it's similar to what we were saying before, where the distinction, you have to draw the distinction between changing movies before they enter your own borders and then changing movies that are being shown outside of them. But then there's this other parallel, which is the Nazis' effort to change films at the root level of production. So the Nazis dispatched a, um, I guess, I don't know what he was. He was, a, he was a, an official in the Nazi party to Los Angeles to be stationed here and to be their man in Hollywood. And what he would do is he would watch the announcements of, you know, this script was bought by MGM or these actors have signed on to do this movie. And if it was anything that was skirting those issues, he would let them know that you should reconsider this. And he would send letters to actors who had been attached to anti-Nazi films to say, your career in Germany is over if you proceed with this film. And and even, you know, and then the calculations quickly made, well, if my career in Germany is over, is that going to make the studio less likely to hire me overall? And so that kind of public coercion is is also something we see China doing quite a bit. Um, and then there was, there's also, I think, some thematic parallels in the kinds of images and storylines that the Nazis took issue with. Obviously, like I said, anything that was remotely critical of Hitler or like a veiled critique of Hitler was was no pro- was was not going to fly. But then there was there's also just um a resistance to any image of national weakness. Um so so in um in the 1930s there was a film that was made in which a a German soldier is shown complaining of thirst. And that had to be taken out of the film because that made a German soldier look weak. And then you cut to 60, 70 years later, you have a James Bond film coming out called Skyfall. And there's a scene in which James Bond is breaking into the security building and he shoots and kills a security guard. It just so happens that security guard is Chinese. That scene had to be cut because it made China look weak. So there's there's thematic parallels between what the two countries or the two parties took issue with, but there also are very similar playbooks deployed to how to influence how the movies get made. And what's interesting here is it's unclear to me what the takeaway from that 1930s period is because the issue was solved by that whole World War II thing in the sense that, okay, once Hitler declares war on the United States post Pearl Harbor, Obviously, Hollywood studios are not going to be taking orders from a Nazi party official or even 
engaging in soft censorship of their own. So did the what what would you say would be the takeaway from this era, given the fact that some of the dynamics, or let me put it this way, without having to allege that the Chinese or the CCP is literally the Nazis, the key thing here is there are structural similarities that re, that create a, a similar result. Is there any lesson for a, dealing with those structural realities? Or once again, was this just basically deus ex machina by World War II? It, it certainly was deus ex machina because and, not only did it turn Hollywood into critics of the Nazis, but Hollywood was essentially conscripted into the war effort. I mean, a lot of the... I'll, I'll, I'll get to your question, but I think this is an important point because a lot of the queasiness that I think Americans feel when they hear about Chinese censorship of American films is rooted in the image of Hollywood that the 1940s and World War II cemented. Because after the U.S. entered the war, the American military really engaged Hollywood. And not just in in saying, like, you know, it would be great if we released films like Sergeant York, these kind of sanitized stories of American heroism. But directors like Frank Capra and John Huston were literally sent to Europe to film battles and and cut footage of soldiers and all of their exploits and send them back home. And those films were shown in theaters, you know, as part of like the newsreels that would run before a movie would would come on. And, and it really, so it bolstered support at home for the war effort abroad. And then after World War II ends, the U.S. and other countries involved in the Marshall Plan start making all of these movies that are sent to Europe to try to reunite a fractured Europe and introduce audiences there to these concepts of liberalism and democracy and free expression. And so I think that is how a lot of people still think Hollywood should function, that when called to do America's bidding in the world, it will. Um, and and really as our as our best commercial for ourselves. I don't think that's how Hollywood executives see their jobs today. But I but to answer your question about what would cause such such an a solution, I should say, or, or a change in mentality. I mean, being totally shut off from the Chinese market might mm-hmm. do that, but that would require a decoupling that extends far beyond Chinese authorities not letting American movies in. Because all of these studios today are owned by much larger parent companies. So the only way Sony could green light a movie and not worry about China is if all of Sony's supply chain and consumer base for all of its electronics are have nothing to do with China. The only way that Disney could make a movie that has a scene critical of China or hire someone who has angered Chinese authorities is if their theme park disappears, they never sell another toy in the market, they never have to worry about any TV shows. I mean, so whenever we say... Oftentimes, if you hear of Chinese authorities not letting American movies in, people will say like, oh, this might give the studios a bit of a leash, right? This might, if they don't have to worry about it. Well, it's like, no, like their bosses are still worried about it um, because their parent companies could also be infected by any movie that these studios release that anger the regime. 
I, I, but I think the thing, the, the thing that I've been trying to game out a little bit is what would happen if there was greater bipartisan political opposition to Hollywood censorship and Hollywood self-censorship for the Chinese market. Um, because I do think it's shifting in a, into more of a bipartisan debate. I think before, before this, and especially during the Trump administration, it seemed like liberals and progressives were skittish around criticizing China because they didn't want to appear xenophobic or sound too much like the president. They were crit- always criticizing. And now I think I've even seen just while promoting this book that there's more of an equilibrium in terms of um, engagement on the issue. So I wonder what kind of political pushback um, might change how Hollywood operates. I don't, I think it probably would be very tough to see some kind of consumer pushback. Um, but I, I, I guess you could also say like, if, if something deteriorates to the point of a war or conflict, that is some, that would certainly have to, that would certainly result in some kind of, of sea change. But I think one of the questions that everyone has as they game out those scenarios is what happens to the economic ties that are so deeply threaded together? Does that prevent war? Does that complicate war? You know, what would what would possibly happen to, you know, not just movies getting in, but Tesla and iPhones getting in too? I'm glad you set that up that way, because something I'm curious about is what would policy bipartisan pushback even look like? Because once again, the thing here that isn't even at all like the Nazi situation is there is no CCP official directly ensconced in Hollywood censoring and sending emails that aggressively. Um, That would actually be a terrible move that wouldn't go very well um, on a couple of different levels. Um, Transparency is obviously different now. But what? But, but beyond, and I think the only suggestion I would basically probably make is that if you have a movie like Top Gun, where there is obviously DOD involvement, it would seem that the Taiwan disaster with Tom Cruise really was just an oversight. But other than just the DOD um, participation in these types of films, like what? What possible? I mean, because you're not going to have a world where you, you can't get into a scriptwriter's head. Like you said, like how, how am I supposed like how how would that even work outside of that very direct lever? Right, and we don't want a world where government authorities are in a scriptwriter's head because that is the Chinese model. You know, China yeah. China doesn't allow any movie to go into production without approval from authorities, um, and so you certainly wouldn't want to replicate that here in the U.S. I think that there, I think it was Ted Cruz had proposed. Um, a bill that was similar to what you just described, where if there was government involvement in a film, um, that that, I think it was like that, that help could be revoked or any kind of uh, support could be revoked if there was some kind of Chinese censorship um, question. It's just, it's just so impractical. I mean, there's, there's no studio in town that would change course or change their way of doing business because um, they might lose DOD involvement on one film. It just, it, it just. So Top would, Gun 2 just wouldn't happen. Like, you, you, Paramount just wouldn't do Top Gun 2. They wouldn't, they wouldn't do Top Gun 2, or, or maybe they'd be able to find a way to do it without DOD involvement. Um, you know, it just, it, it wouldn't, um, it's not, it's just not consequential 
enough. So, so I think that, I think you're right. Like, I mean, it's interesting because every, every time we have this, these high profile examples of Western businesses or notable figures appeasing Chinese authorities, there's this, there's, there's quite a bit of political outrage and and backlash over it. this was i mean this was most true i think with um the nba and and the nba situation with um uh with the hong kong demonstrations um but outside of that i don't quite know what what lawmakers could do because it is so entrenched in the business plans here yeah and the key difference too is Obviously, with the NBA, so much of what drove that is people knew da- people know Daryl Morey. People have like attachment to teams. People um, are will be very pro or anti LeBron James. It's not like pe- most people, aside from people like us, don't have opinions on Paramount versus MGM versus like. There's no actual and and also too like Sony broadly. If Sony owns, you know, Sony Pictures, it's it's, it's even less direct there. So there's very little individual backlash there. For for the, for this last section, I'm I'm very curious about the let's just say like the second half of the 20th century where it comes to the history thing here, which is we go we just did World War II, we 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 did Nazi Germany, we did World War II. You obviously enter into the Cold War, and there's two parts of that dynamic. One is the clear one that because the economic relationship just wasn't there, these issues weren't there. But you 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 said this interesting thing. In the book, and this is why I'm glad we're doing a second episode because I forgot to ask you this. You made the statement, and stop me from quoting quoting you wrong, that oftentimes filmmakers in censorship driven cultures can actually make really great films because the limitations that they're hewed under are just force you to do really really great work. Uh, and there's certain types of genius people who could pull it off. If if that's true, why is the only Soviet film we remember is why, why is it the Battleship Potemkin? And by the way, no one's even seen the Battleship Potemkin, so we all know it. Like we're, we're we're educated people, we know about the baby carriage going down the thing, but no one's actually seen it. Why was there only one great communist movie? If the dynamic you're describing is true. Can I be, can I just acknowledge how um that I have seen the Battleship Potemkin. Um if you want if you want any window into how insufferable I was in high school, I watched it with a friend, <laughs> I think like my sophomore year or something. Um and I do remember thinking this is quite good. Um so this this is a theory. I don't know if I buy it. It's a it is something that would come up when I was interviewing filmmakers. Um there's primarily there's one filmmaker in the book who um his name is Jean-Jacques Arnaud and he directed 7 years in Tibet in the 1990s mm-hmm. a movie about the young Dalai Lama that got him and Brad Pitt and everyone involved in the film banned from China about 10 or 15 years later he was contacted by Chinese producers who said they wanted him to come to China to make a movie and he said well that's great, but I'm banned in the country. And they said, we know that. That's why we want to hire you. Because there's a film we want to produce. It has government support. It's called Wolf Totem. And it has these themes of environmentalism that we want to explore on screen. And we know that if a director who was previously banned in China makes it, that its message will be received not as government propaganda, but as some kind of auteur statement. Uh, which is a pretty savvy uh, move on their part. And 
So he goes over um, to this country that he thought he'd been banned from, makes this film critically acclaimed. But there's this kind of nationalist online mob that follows him everywhere he goes and says he must apologize for making seven years in Tibet all those years earlier. And eventually he does. He apologizes for making the film and insulting the Chinese people. And when I asked him, he's uh, he's French. I, when I asked him um, about why he had such a change of heart, he is the one who kind of first raised this point, which is that there were a lot of filmmakers in Europe who he studied in film school, um, names you and I cannot recognize, who were operating in these in these regimes where they had to color inside the lines. Um, and I, I think I, I understand it um, on one level, which is, you know, it's it's much easier to write an article. It's much easier for me to write an article if I know I'm writing an 800 word article and not being told just write what you feel like, you know, like, I mean, constraints help everyone's creativity. Now, in terms of this kind of constraint, though, I, I think it I think it can sometimes be um, be something of an excuse. And and I um I certainly don't know. I certainly think it might be I certainly would say it's possible to make an effective film and to frankly, like have some fun with those constraints and and maybe like pull one over on on the authority. Certainly there are examples of that. But I don't know if anyone could really argue it's the preferred model, right? I, I just think I think it's probably a byproduct of these systems that filmmakers have to be creative in how they can push the envelope and make these movies that work on this meta level. But um, but I think I think you're right. I mean. Oftentimes what it means is just like movies that can either feel medicinal or always have to achieve some kind of politically correct equilibrium. Yeah, I I was asking that because for my last question here, I am deeply interested in this idea which comes through your book that if we're making reference to the World War II era United States, then the the 80s and the 90s, and the 80s are really discussed through the lens of a lot of the directors you're following. It seems to me that the Chinese film industry um, and Chinese movie studios are really going through this weird mix of the 40s and 50s and that they're clearly um, not just like mouthpieces because that suggests a lack of agency. I, I think actually it's like pretty clear that Chinese directors and, and people like actually – as with people in most countries, like want to be um, take advantage of the fact that they have this real soft power capacity to tell a story about their country, um, and I completely understand that. But then there's also like the very like '80s like Rambo style. This, of course, is a, a reference to Wolf Warrior. And I guess my question is: Is the world interested in those types of stories? Because you, you there's this great section in the book on Kenya, but. That that section is driven by the fact that Chinese telecom companies are giving Kenyans access to television. And as a result of that, there's lots of Chinese programming. And you make very clear they like the Chinese programming. But cartoons and kung fu shows are, are different than 80s style movies, but in the year 2022 with a Chinese hero. 
Um, and then the last bit, I, I forget the, the movie last year, but that battle about the movie about the, the, the huge battle in the Korean War, are, are, are worldwide audiences looking to see Chinese soldiers kill Americans to be really crass about it um, on video um, in a way that really you watch the trailers for that movie on YouTube as just people look. It looks like a it looks like a 40s 50s movie. Like mm-hmm. obviously, like the graphics are better, but it's it's kind of cheesy. It's very bloody in that type of way. And I'm just curious if people are interested in those stories. Yeah, it's a great question. I think that it depends on what purpose the each story is going to serve. Right. So the battle at Lake Changjin about this big Korean War uh, battle is 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 um is one of many Korean War movies being made in China today. Um, there's there's another one, I think it's called Sniper, that is essentially about, it's China's American Sniper. It's about a sharpshooter who killed a lot of Americans in the war. Um, and I think those movies are often put into production by the government. Those are movies directly produced by the Ministry of Propaganda to serve an inward propagandistic purpose. Um, now, when it comes to the movies that China sends overseas, oftentimes these are more along the lines of more, much more commercial films, um, things like soap operas or, mm-hmm. um, as you said, like children's shows. I remember I also I even watched um, like a Chinese version of that reality show, that competition Wipeout about people, you know, mm-hmm. people who run on floaties in the water and try not to fall in. I mean, and then wipe out. Very and then self- wipe out with, <laughs> with like this amazing classical music playing in the background. I mean, talk about talk about a universal language. That is a show that yes. works in every in every language. Um, and so, so I would say. I think Chinese authorities, if they if they could wave a magic wand, would love it if people around the world went to see the battle at Lake Changjin. And, but that's not happening right now. It is doing quite an effective number on, I think, the Chinese people. And it is, as you said, kind of giving them their cinematic moment. Um, if, if our 1980s cinematic output reflected a moment of national optimism, a city shining on a hill, um, and, and the movies were going to contribute to the end of history theory that, that democracy had won, then the American film did that. I think a lot of folks in China say, this is our moment. This is our time. And, and why can't, why shouldn't we celebrate and exalt our victories throughout history and, and find our own heroes, which, which I think anyone can, can understand. Um, now when it comes to shipping those movies overseas, I will say you're right that in Kenya and in other parts of the world, China still has to pay to close that gap and appeal. The Chinese movies would not beat out the American films in most countries. If it was just a free market of what would you rather watch? Um, you're right that a lot of the people who I met with in Kenya who are fans of these, this Chinese entertainment are finding it because they were given a satellite dish from a Chinese firm that costs less than other satellite dishes. It's subsidized by the governments to better fulfill that soft power purpose. I think there's one, I think there's one distinction there, which is in a lot of these countries, these are these are audiences that have already been receptive to foreign entertainment. So receiving Chinese movies and TV shows is not 
alien to them because they've been receiving American or telenovelas. They've been receiving mostly foreign entertainment for their whole life. So it's not as jarring as it would be for Western audiences that are used to 95% of our diet being Western entertainment. And then the other thing is I think there's an ubiquity, a Chinese ubiquity around them beyond the TV screen. So imagine you live in one of these villages and, or let's just go to Nairobi. Imagine you live in Nairobi and all of a sudden one day there are thousands of Chinese workers building a new highway through your city. There's a mm-hmm. Chinese restaurant. There's a hotel that's printing receipts in Mandarin. And, and this is a, this is a country that you really had very little reason to pay attention to before then. I think these, these movies and TV shows are functioning as something of an introduction to China and Chinese culture for a lot of these people who understandably are just trying to figure out who they are. Um, and, and especially when I was there in 2020, it felt like they were trying, they were in, they were being introduced to a country while the superpower they had come to know was retreating. Very well said. Eric, I'd love for you as we close out just to shout out the book, um, any relevant uh, follow-ups that interested members of the audience to go check out. Lots of, I mean, once again, this is a 80, 90 year story. So lots of really great stuff here. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Yeah, the book is called Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. Thank you for joining us on Counterbalance, Eric. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. That's all we have here. Huge thank you to everyone for tuning in. Huge thank you to Mike and a huge thank you to Hudson Institute for supporting our work. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you. 